0: For centuries, Western culture looked to the fertile crescent of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers as the cradle of civilization. Modern scientists extrapolated that further with Darwinian evolutionary rhetoric and the out-of-Africa theory, retaining the focus on the Near East. All of that has now come into question, with breakthroughs in geology lending a new perspective on Earth's ancient past, paired with the growing number of ancient sites consistent in form and function throughout the Arctic, subarctic, and neighboring regions. Joining me to delve into his many books, primarily Beyond the North Wind, which deals with the subject of Hyperborea, a supposedly mythological northern cradle of European civilization. Dr. Christopher McIntosh helped support a case for this being more than the stuff of myth and legend demonstrating a pattern across all cultures that border the Arctic Circle, a pattern that stretches back thousands of years. Dr. Christopher McIntosh was born in England in 1943 and grew up in Edinburgh, Scotland. He studied philosophy, politics, and economics at Oxford and German at London University, later returning to Oxford to take a doctorate in history with a dissertation on the Rosicrucian revival and context of the German Enlightenment and Counter-Enlightenment. After working in London in journalism and publishing, he spent four years in New York as an information officer with the United Nations Development Program, then moved to Germany to work for UNESCO. In parallel, he had pursued a career as a writer and researcher specializing in the esoteric traditions as well as nature-oriented belief systems dr macintosh has written five fiction books and nine non-fiction books including famas fraternitatis ian hamilton finlay a memoir the swan king ludwig ii of bavaria gardens of the gods the rose cross and the age of reason the rosicrucians the history mythology and rituals of an esoteric order eliphas levi and the french occult revival Beyond the North Wind, which we discuss primarily in this episode, and Occult Russia, which is his latest book, and we do talk about that in this episode. I, of course, am Mystic Mark. Thank you for tuning in to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast, and enjoy this episode with Dr. Christopher McIntosh. The following is an
1: excerpt from chapter two. Christopher McIntosh's Beyond the North Wind. The mystique of the North is encapsulated in a name. Thule, a word that conjures up an icy, fall northern land, mysterious, penumbral, lying far away across perilous seas. Our conception of Thule has been handed down from a remarkable Greek mariner called Pythias, who sailed in the early 4th century BCE from the Greek colony of Massalia present-day Marseille. Using highly advanced measuring techniques to calculate factors such as latitude and distance, he and his crew sailed out of the Mediterranean then went via Britain into the North Atlantic and eventually reached a land of ice and fog he called Thule which may have been Iceland. The Romans later called it Ultima Thule. Sadly, Pythias’s original account of the voyage was lost, but it was transmitted at second or third hand by later chroniclers such as Strabo, Diodorus Siculus, and Pliny the Elder. Over time, the notion of Thule merged with an older Greek motif, namely that of Hyperborea, meaning the land beyond Boreas, the north wind. One of those who wrote about it was the Greek poet Pindar, c. 518 to 442 BCE, who described the Hyperboreans as having an ideal way of life. Neither by ship nor on foot could you find the marvelous road to the meeting place of the Hyperboreans in the festivities of those people, and in their praises Apollo rejoices most. The muse is not absent from their customs. All around swirl the dances of girls, the lyre's loud chords, and the cries of flutes. They wreathe their hair with golden laurel branches and revel joyfully. No sickness or ruinous old age is mixed into that sacred race. Without toil or battles they live without fear of strict nemesis. The Hyperborean theme also captured the imagination of the Romans. Pliny the Elder in his Natural History of about 77 CE writes as follows. Then come the Rupian Mountains, and the region called Tephorus is a part of the world that lies under the condemnation of nature and is plunged in dense darkness, and occupied only by the work of frost and the chilly lurking places of the North Wind. Behind these mountains and beyond the North Wind there dwells, if we can believe it, a happy race of people called the Hyperboreans, who live to extreme old age and are famous for legendary marvels, Here are believed to be the hinges on which the firmament turns and the extreme limits of the revolutions of the stars, with six months daylight and a single day of the sun in retirement, not as the ignorant have said, from the spring equinox till autumn. For these people the sun rises once in the year at midsummer and sets once at midwinter. It is a genial region, with a delightful climate and exempt from every harmful blast. The homes of the natives are the woods and the groves. They worship the gods severally and in congregations. All discord and all sorrow is unknown. Death comes to them only when, owing to satiety of life, after holding a banquet and anointing their old age with luxury, they leap from a certain rock into the sea. This mode of burial is the most blissful. Over subsequent centuries, the theme of hyperburia could be intermittently heard like a faint leitmetiff within the culture of the
2: problems with that theory because if hyperborea existed it couldn't have been and it couldn't have been at the north pole because there's no landmass under the ocean at the north pole but what's possible is that the earth's axis has shifted either the axis has shifted or the crust has shifted in relation to the landmass underneath the crust so either way the north pole could have been in a different position in relation to the axis. Another possibility that the Earth's axis at one point was vertical. Right. Vertical to the path of the sun. Right. Which would have meant there wouldn't have been any seasons. Right. There would, there, there would have been no summer and winter. It would have been the same, season or same seasonal conditions all year round. So that would have meant uh, that in the north, in, in the far north, it would have been somewhat more temperate than it is now because there wouldn't have been any tilt of the Earth's axis in the winter, producing extreme cold. So so that's another possibility.
0: Right. And this is all hypothetical, of course. None of this has yeah. been proven sacrosanct. It's just sort of of interest to, to look through this and talk about the possibilities.
2: Yeah, well... There <coughs> there is some concrete evidence because in for example, in Spitbergen, which is very far north, they've discovered remains of vegetation which would only grow in a temperate zone. So that is some indication that there might be something in this theory of the tilt in the Earth's axis. Yeah, and also in, in Greenland and, and Northern Canada they found similar vegetation. Mm. So so that's one piece of evidence. But it's sort of indirect evidence.
0: Well, and at the very least, it seems like the diffusionist theory that cultures diffuse from the Middle East uh, came Mm. northward, seems like that theory you've shown just doesn't stand up when you examine the physical evidence that's left behind in the north where you have Stonehenge and other complex structures being built hundreds of years before those cultures even started
2: i think the old, the oldest parts of stonehenge go, go back to about 5000 bc wow which is before the pyramids right
0: <laughs> yeah. right
2: so that gives that, that gives you an idea of the time scale so the fact is that the the early, inhabit, the early inhabitants of northern europe were sort of written off as primitive by barbarians which is a completely false picture I mean, they didn't build pyramids, but they built structures like Stonehenge that were extremely complex. They were complicated astronomical observatories, and they involved an enormous effort of engineering just to bring those stones, because they came from a long distance away, just to bring those stones to their present location was a tremendous feat. And it's estimated that it would have taken the entire population of Britain at the time about seven years just to erect this central circle of stones. Wow. Wow. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's impressive. And given the sheer amount of stone structures in this category or of this kind, whether it's single standing stones, dolmens, or astronomically aligned stone structures like Stonehenge, we find countless examples. They all seem to be curiously within the radius or at least close to the radius of the Arctic Circle, right? So it seems like at one point in time, there was this culture that had whether they influenced their neighbors to build other similar structures or they had themselves spread throughout this Mm. Arctic region from Russia, parts of Siberia, you find these dolmens. You even mention in in your book Beyond the North Wind the pyramidal mounds and stone spheres up in the north of Russia there on some island there.
2: Yes, Yeah. very mysterious things. Yeah, and the interesting thing is If you go around the Arctic Circle, you find that all the indigenous peoples of that region have a shamanic culture, starting, say, in Scandinavia. If you go to Greenland, then northern Canada to Alaska, then across the Bering Strait to eastern Siberia with the Mongol peoples like the Yakut and the Buryat and so on. And then through the Sami people of northern Russia and Scandinavia, it's all Shaman. Yeah, it really is.
0: There's so much to get into. We're just getting mm. into this podcast. We're just starting. Let's put this aside for now, sir. Yeah. And Let's start. Welcome to the show. This is the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast, and I've already introduced the audience to you in post. I'll record a whole introduction segment, so they, they know your accolades and they know what books you've written. But tell mm. us a little bit about what got you interested in all this when you were a young man or when you were a child. Mm. How did you set off on this course in life? Because it's such an interesting grouping of books that you've written, your focus is yeah. pronounced, you, you speak German, you speak other, multiple other languages. Tell us about how this all kicked off for you.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, well, it, it was multiple things that came together. As a child, when I was going to school back in the 1950s and 60s, the version of history we were taught was that essentially, as I said, civilization spread from the south to the north, that, that it all started roughly in the region that is now Iraq, with the development of agriculture and so on, settled communities. And then it went via the Babylonians and the Egyptians and the Greeks and the Romans and further north, until all of Europe was civilized. Well, as I said, they, this tended to write off the original in, inhabitants of northern Europe as primitive barbarians. So it wasn't until quite a bit later that I began to question this theory when I began to read about archaeology and so on with the writings of people like Alexander Tom in the 1960s and 70s who wrote a lot about megalithic sites that did some very thorough research into stonehenge and other megalithic sites and he came up with the concept of the megalithic yard the megalithic yard which was a measurement that he found was used all over the all over the part of the northern hemisphere where these megalithic remains are found so all that was very interesting but simultaneously i became interested in the Nordic mythology. And, for example, I was always very fond of the operas of Richard Wagner, The Ring Cycle, which is all about the Nordic gods, the rise and fall of the Nordic gods. And I also, around the early 1980s, I got to know two people one was Hilmar Ern Hilmason, who is now the head of the pagan community in Iceland, the Azatru community. He's also quite a well-known composer. So I got to know him, and I also got to know a woman who was a neighbor of mine in London at the time, who uh, Freya Eswin, who wrote a book called The Leaves of Yggdrasil about the runes. Uh, It's a very interesting interpretation of the runes and the meaning of the runes. So uh, I started to get interested in the runes and the whole Nordic tradition, but it wasn't yet really a deep personal interest for me. It was more a kind of intellectual interest. But then I visited Iceland and uh, I started to get involved in pagan circles in London, and then later after I moved to Germany. And uh, so I became more and more drawn to this Nordic tradition. The other thing was that I lived in New York for four years when I was working for the United Nations. And uh, I had a number of sort of revelatory experiences there. And uh, looking back at Europe from the vantage point of New York, I basically realized that I'm a North European, that that, that's where my roots are. And I realized that the Nordic gods are my gods. So I I think that was the point where I really saw myself as having a, a deep connection to this Nordic tradition, this Nordic world. And coming into contact with that world, I found it had its own kind of energy, which I describe as a sort of wild, free energy, rather like an untamed horse, if you know what I mean, but a beautiful and noble kind of energy. So uh, that's really my the story of my own personal involvement in this area. Yeah, wow. So, and then, uh, well, a crucial event was... Conference, the conference of the New York Open Center in Iceland in 2016 about the Nordic mysteries and the mysteries of the north. And I gave a lecture there on the Nordic mythology. And after the conference, in the bus on the way back to Reykjavik, I was sitting next to Scott Olson, who's a professor in Florida, an expert. On sacred geometry and the golden section and he said to me well why don't you turn that talk into a book so that was how the book came about
0: fantastic yeah i resonate with it so deeply especially america and germany have a similarity in the sense that there is this yearning for an identity right and america has mm-hmm. it a little more so than germany we've been kind of given the mix. Donald's version of identity here to some extent. Yeah. But you know, myself, my last name means stiff. It's a German word, stiff, unbending. Yes. So I've traced my lineage, my genealogy mm-hmm. back to Munsonhaus in Germany. I believe that's where oh, yeah. yes. where my family line comes from. And reading this Beyond the North Wind book. I had this same sort of uh, appreciation for what could have been, let's say, my ancestors' deities, right? And I did feel that kind of activating within me, like, how does this fit into my life? Because it does feel compatible and exciting, but I just don't know enough about it. And it does seem complex. How have the Norse cultures left their imprint on... Christianity and other spiritualities, because you mention in the book that it's almost like the way crystals form in a rock matrix, dissolve, and then are replaced by, let's say, a metal or another Mm -hmm. component of the earth. The secondary element takes on the form of the former the ghost crystal right and that's kind of how Mm. you describe the hyperborean culture possibly leaving its imprint Mm. on all of these norwegian scandinavian icelandic Mm. Mm. etc
2: well i think it's of course an ambivalent relationship between the this northern hyperborean culture and the christian culture but on the other hand the northern culture has left its spark in various ways. In, for example, in in folklore, well, I, I could cite all kinds of ways in which it's left its influence, but think, think for example, of the names of the days of the week. So you, you've got Friday, which is named after Freya, the Nordic goddess of love. Thursday, which is named after the god Thor, the thunder god. Wednesday, named after Odin, the chief of the gods and the god of wisdom and poetry and so on. And then Tuesday, named after Tyr, who is the god, really, of courage and self-sacrifice, you could say. And the name, there, another variation of Tyr is Tios or Toit. And if you change the T to a soft D, you get Deut, from which you get Deutschlands. So it's actually in the name of the country, Deutschland. Wow. Yeah. And then there are all kinds of folk beliefs. For example, the idea that the stork brings children into the world. You're familiar with that. Yeah. Well, this again goes back to the Nordic mythology because in the Nordic mythology, the stork has a special significance. And the mythology says that the stork goes to the fountain of life, where the souls, the new souls, wait to be incarnated, Mm. and the stork takes takes a new soul and places it in the womb of the future mother. So it's actually a very beautiful legend, and that's the source of the legend that the, the stork that brings children into the world. Right. Well, and then, well, in in Germany there's a very strong cult of the tree, of tree worship, which, which again, it goes back to the idea of the world tree, the Ignazl, which is the center of the world and contains within it nine worlds, the world of the gods, the world of human beings, the world of the elves and the giants and so on. And the, there's, a, there's a kind of mystique of the tree in, in Germany so that in every town, well, nearly every town or village, there's a tree in a central place, which is either a it's either a Linden lime tree, Linde in Germany, so it's the Dorf Linde, the village Linden, or it's often an oak, so the, the Dorf Eiche. So yeah, in all those ways, this this Nordic worldview and culture has permeated. Yeah. permeated our culture.
0: Well, I can even see the tradition of the Christmas tree possibly having similar similarities to it. Yeah, that that
2: comes from the same source.
0: Right. It's interesting because I have heard there are some Egyptian connections as well to the putting a tree in your home at that time of year. But again, this could show the sort of world global nature of a lot of these ancient Cultures that we think of as being isolated, they actually weren't. They were traveling very far, trading with one another. And maybe that's why we see similarities in heathen culture and Egyptian culture, right? I mean, that's just my observation. You may not compound on that. But yeah, it is interesting. These folks yeah. left their legacy in this way. And,
2: and re- remember that the tree is also something shamanic. The, no- the notion of the tree. When, in, in shamanism there is again the concept of the world tree which connects earth and heaven and in the, the among the mongolian shamans there's a tent with a tent pole in the middle and the tent pole becomes symbolic of the world tree so and yeah so so again and i think it's also something universal really this this notion of a world tree c- connecting heaven and earth i think this is probably something in the inherited unconscious of humanity
0: yeah it definitely appears to be at least in the northern world for sure yeah, yeah. you, you mm. see this even in native american cultures which for the most part as conventional history tells us they were fairly isolated for a great amount of time but as we began in the Outset of our conversation here, I was sort of pointing out some of the things I found here in my Mm. neck of the woods in New England that would lead me to believe that Vikings and Celtic sailors had come to America Mm. much before Columbus ever did. A lot of this is established now, Leif Erikson and so on, but there's a lot more than they've officially recognized, and I know that's Mm. not your particular bag, but... When it comes to Native American culture, obviously shamanism has existed amongst all most of the tribes in North America. Are there any cultural examples in Native American tribes that would, again, show this connection to the Nordic cultures? Any other aspects of Native American cultures that they share with the Nords, the Swedish, the Scandinavian peoples?
2: Well, one, one thing that occurs to me is the totem pole. I mean, that, that's surely another version, isn't it, of the world tree? Yeah,
0: absolutely.
2: And, and also the the idea of totem animals. Hmm. This is something that, that you get in the Native American tribes, which again is very shamanic. Vision quests and all of that. Right, yeah. Now,
0: while we're on the subject of animals, there's a... An animal that has a sort of uh, association nowadays with Christmas, again, like the tree, uh, Mm. but it also has this sort of psychedelic implication as well, right? The reindeer that eats the amanita mushroom and then the shaman drinks the urine of the reindeer. Is this something that... Is isolated to just certain tribes in Siberia, or is this a, a common shamanic practice among people in the Arctic Circle?
2: Well, I suspect that it's pretty widespread. I mean, I've only come across it in contact in in connection with the Sami people hmm. in northwestern Russia, but I suspect that it's quite widespread. Right. Uh, I would be surprised if it wasn't. And now.
0: On the point of the Sami people, forgive me, I'm not remembering the exact point you made in the book, but something about how some of these people have fair skin, fair hair, almost blonde, blue-eyed type characteristics, whereas others who are from the same group, same tribe, have very dark skin, dark hair. There's a wide variety of genetic characteristics expressed by these northern peoples where if they were maybe isolated and at the last leg of their genetic trip, we might not see that kind of variation, right? Is there something to be learned there with the genetic characteristics and the variety of people that live in the Arctic Circle?
2: Yeah, well, for example, if you look at the indigenous inhabitants of the Canary Islands, the, before the Canary Islands were colonized by Spain, there was an indigenous population called the Guanches. And these were tall, blue eyed people with fair hair or reddish hair, big, strong people of a kind of a Nordic build. So the question is where they came from. And to find these odd examples of fair-skinned, fair-haired, blue-eyed people cropping up in in various places. So I think it's possible that if there was a hyperborea, and the hyperboreas did then disperse to other parts of the world, that they then intermarried with the populations of the places they went to. And that's what we see today in these, in these fair-haired, blonde people. Right, right. And
0: right now, you know, the Hyperborean culture is impacting Russia in a very interesting way, as they have gone through so much turmoil and really terrible yes. events in their past hundred years, they're sort of reeling for a different, more sympathetic view of themselves, their identity, their history. And in order to mm. find that, they've turned towards the ancient past and this hyper-Borean mm. culture, much in the same way that Germany sort of did this. And you, you write that Germany's interest in the North, it doesn't color the North with their actions right like because the germans did these awful things it wasn't because of their interest in the north but it was all sort of a part of this circumstantial melting pot Mm -hmm. going on where a lot of these ideas about hyperborea were used to sort of put fuel to the fire of this nationalist yes. fervor that was being ignited in Germany, much in the same way yeah. it might be happening now in Russia with Dugin and characters like that, right?
2: Yes. Yeah, well, as you say, in the wake of the collapse of communism, the Russians were on a great spiritual search. The, 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 the communist years left a sort of vacu- spiritual vacuum and a tremendous hunger which they're now trying to assuage. And uh, so a lot of people are turning to the Orthodox Church or back to the Orthodox Church, and thousands of new churches are being built, new priests are being recruited and so on. So that's one direction. Others are turning to to various kind of new age things. So if you go into a, a bookshop, in Russia and go to the esoteric section, you'll find all the usual things that you would find, Russian translations of all the usual New Age books that you'd find in a Western New Age bookshop. But then there's another group, which is looking to the pre-Christian past of Russia. And there's a tremendous interest in this right now, and the whole notion of hyperbaria is part of it. And there well, back in the 1920s, there was a famous expedition to the region of the, the region of Northwest Russia next to the Arctic Ocean, as led by a man called Babchenko. And he came to the conclusion that the that he had in fact discovered Hyperborea, and that the Sami people of that region were in fact the descendants of the Hyperboreans. But then that became, this theme became sort of taboo during the, the Stalinist can we years. Can
0: we rewind a little bit here, because mm. this was one of the more fascinating aspects of your book, and I had to take some notes. So Marchenko mm. was interested in something called Meta-history, is that correct, or am I thinking of someone else?
2: Meta-history.
0: It might have been another character mentioned at a similar time in the book, but the idea of meta-history came up where maybe, you know what, it's a more contemporary guy than Barchenko. It's this guy who's written on Russian blogs about Hyperborea, and this idea that he's sort of looking into history with the idea or the presupposition that history is looking back at him in this metaphysical way, sort of hinting at things, sort of cajoling this man into a different yeah. enlightenment and things like this. Yes,
2: it's a sort of mixture of fact and fiction. It's right. Sort of, it's sort of trying to get at the essence of history in a way, right? like treating it in a kind of mythical, almost mythical way. Yes. Yeah but Vashchenko he well he believed and a number of other people believed that there was a knowledge an, an advanced knowledge that had been preserved in Hyperborea right and that if he could get at this knowledge then it would be a tremendous source of power so he that's, that was one of the main reasons why he went to Hyperborea he, he spent about a couple of years there in in northwestern russia
0: now, part of that expedition as well was to determine whether or not the Sami natives had befallen to mass hysteria, right? I mean, that was an oh, yes. element to this story.
2: That's right, that's right. There were outbreaks of mass hysteria which he wanted to study.
0: Interesting. Now,
2: But if he found that, for example, they had very remarkable powers of healing. Sami.
0: Right. There was an event where he was suffering what seemed like a fatal heart attack and a Sami Mm -hmm. shamaness poked at his heart with a knife and he woke up the next morning pain-free. This is fascinating
2: stuff. That's right. Yes. And then he found all sorts of interesting remains, like uh, the pyramid, these pyramids, as you mentioned earlier, right? labyrinths and paved roads and things like that. But then... He was actually, he was murdered during the Stalinist terror, very sadly. Right. And the whole subject became taboo for a long time. Then, after the collapse of communism, some more expeditions were organized, and they also found very interesting remains. So there is this tremendous interest in Hyperborea and in the whole pre-Christian past of Russia, and there's a tremendous revival of of paganism going on, the old Russian pagan gods.
0: Right, right. And you you mentioned in the book that we in the West tend to think of Russians as primarily Slavic, but Russians themselves have a lot of Nordic aspects to their culture. There were Russian Vikings in the past, and of course, many shamanistic aspects to different tribes throughout Russia. So clearly there's a cross-cultural cross, cross cultural connection there. But yeah, oh, that yeah. Slavic identity is being sort of contended with by that Nordic side of them as well, right?
2: Yes, well, I mean, it was really Vikings who originally founded the state of Russia because they sailed down the, I think it was the Dnieper River from the North Sea or the Baltic into Russia. And they uh, founded initially the, the town of Nov- Novgorod, and then they went further south, and they founded Kiev. So Kiev, it was originally known as Kievan Rus. So that, that was really the cradle of what later became Russia, right. which is so, what makes it so ironic that there's, there's this conflict today going on. But anyway, they, they, there was this very strong Russian influence, and there is, even today, there's some debate going on about, are we of Scandinavian extraction or are, are, are we Slavic? Right. Well, and then, then, of course, there's all the other ethnic groups, like the Mongol tribes in the Far East and the Turkic populations and so on. Right. It's a huge mixture.
0: Absolutely. I mean, it's the largest country in the world with so, so much land. I mean, it's incredible, the just massive wealth of land in Russia. Now, the entire region of Ukraine was originally populated by Scythians, right? As as far back as we can sort of see with recorded history, right?
2: That's right, yes. Yes, there was a Scythian empire.
0: Right. And the Scythians are quite... Fascinating. We've talked about them on this podcast before, their connection to something that's near and dear to my heart, cannabis, which they used cannabis hemp fibers to become adept at horse riding. If it wasn't for cannabis, they might not have mastered the horse in the way that they did. And that obviously got them far and around the world. Even to this day, this symbol of the horse head is used as a sort of protection in places like Germany and Russia, correct?
2: Oh, yes, yeah, it's, it's very common, and particularly in the part of Germany where I live, where crossed horse heads on the gable of buildings are very common. Okay. And uh, this goes back to the idea of the horse being a, a sacred animal, really, in in the shamanic tradition. Right,
0: right. And Odin, to bring it back to the Norse pantheon, Odin is depicted sometimes on a eight-legged horse which is sort of a psychedelic kind of imagery in some way but is there Hmm. any thought to that eight-legged i mean is eight a significant number to the to these people why would they choose that image of an eight-legged horse
2: i've never really found the answer to that i've heard that it is a shamanic number Ah. I couldn't I couldn't tell you its exact significance.
0: You know what came to mind when I first read that was The spider, because in other Native American cultures, there's this sort of shamanic weaver story. And you write about that as well, in the sense that the Norse have their own kind of idea about, or at least their own analogy, using thread, where there's Mm -hmm. a god that spins the thread, there's a god that weaves the thread, and then there's the god that cuts the thread (laughs) when your life is over.
2: That's the the three noons. Okay, okay. The three goddesses, the unschooled, right. who represent past, present, and future. Ah, see, and this is interesting. I, I
0: I'm not an expert on this Native American lore, but the spider mother spider grandmother i think it's an anasazi story Mm. she Mm. is that's very much involving time as well that whole lore so i wonder maybe there's a Mm. connection between the spider and the eight-legged horse so
2: it's an interesting thought yeah it
0: could be and not to stretch this tangent out too far but it could have been a jack burton or one of those sort of comical psychedelic like films where i saw an eight legged horse i don't know maybe the no you know what it was is it dolly that has the painting where it's like a horse with very long spider-like legs maybe that's where i'm kind of drawing a (laughs) nexus here
2: (laughs) yes i know the painting you mean yeah
0: yeah so well not to get too far off on that tangent because it is interesting this melting pot that is Russia, of course. Now, going back to Barchenko and that time period, again, maybe I'm conflating this, but there is a term that was used. You said that these men who had an idealistic view of Hyperborea as it pertained to Russia, they talked about Genghis Khan as Someone who completed, and I wrote this down so I wouldn't get it wrong, Grand Nordic Restoration of Sacred Geography, and he did this by having something to do with mountains, and I'm very curious about this phrase. Because it's something we talk about a lot on the show, sacred geography. So what does that exactly mean? Genghis Khan completed a grand Nordic restoration of sacred geography. This was something someone else said. You didn't say this. You are quoting them in the book. It says here, Ancient civilizations were formed under the influence of impulses coming from the north, but these only crystallized and took shape south of a particular geographical feature, the chain of Eurasian mountains, which stretches from the Pyrenees to Manchuria. Civilizations arose within this mysterious paradigm. From north of these mountains flowed raw manpower, which settled and froze into specific forms in the south. What lies to the north is a shadowy unknown sphere, the world of barbarism, the otherworldly abode of infernal beings, picks, wild Germanic, Tehranians. This two-fold model of sacred geography was described in particular detail by the ancient Iranians. The North Eurasian belt from France to Amur forms a single zone, Tehran, which in fact represents Hyperborea, or at least the threshold of Hyperborea. And that's quoted from Dugan talking about and he said, yes, this Grand Nordic Restoration of Sacred Geography, which was achieved by Genghis Khan, through his empire so i guess it's the sort of like i guess they're kind of talking about the silk road in a way and how the all these cultures were working somewhat in sync for a long time
2: yeah this is is dugan talking
0: it's fascinating because i don't know how where you are of this but recently in the united states online there's been an resurgence they don't talk about it in terms of hyperborea they use the term tartaria which maybe you've heard of this maybe you haven't but dugan seems to be maybe by accident maybe by ignorance sort of appropriated into this whole tartaria scheme And folks, their alternative theory is that there once was a great land called Tartaria in Russia, a great civilization of people that were lost and destroyed by the communists, all record of them and other dictatorships before them, of course. But that's why this Dugan character is so fascinating for me, because he's got this very interesting view of Russia today and Russia's past.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, what he's trying to do is basically to find a kind of overall identity for the Russian nation and a kind of to to pl- plug into a certain mystique from the past that, that would have the that uh, would have the ability to energize and inspire the Russian nature, the Russian nation. That's really what he's after. So he's plugging into the idea of hyperborea, the idea of the Turanians. A lot of people are also talking about the Scythian Scythian spirit and how we have to get back to the sort of rather barbaric but very energetic and forceful Syrian way of being, Scythian. So it's all part of the same effort to find a kind of new... national ethos, really.
0: Yeah, it it has a sort of right-wing flavor to it. It has a sort of conservative kind of pastoral. I mean, Russia being this gigantic rural just landscape of pasture Mm. land, and I mean, Mm. they have so much, and it seems like that's done them a disservice in the sense that it's made them a target politically, geopolitically, But even still, throughout their turmoil, Germany and Russia remain connected in this sort of esoteric way, Mm. in the sense that they share so much in their history and their identity, their spirituality. So it's interesting to see them now. You know, I wonder, Germany being a part of NATO and all that, if something might lead to peace, right? I mean, it does Mm. seem like now is an appropriate time to be talking about the Ukraine and Russia with everything going on and people Mm. in the Mm. West, for the most part, all we have is the media that for, I don't know how you feel, but... We tend to think on this show that there's far more propaganda and misdirection nowadays than ever in the media, unfortunately. Mm. So it's hard mm. to make heads or tails of what Russia's really intending and what that what's really going on in their country. And I think your book, not just Beyond the North Wind, but your latest book, which deals primarily with Russia, can help elucidate for the audience that struggle mm. within the Russian mm. consciousness, right? I mean, you write about the samurais in the West, these sort of Viking men. And Russians today have that machismo that you know, mm. it feels Viking-ish. I mean, you look at Putin and the way he puts out press about himself, shirtless on on horseback and killing <laughs> bears and all these things that are, in a sense, to us on the, in the West, they seem a little bit cliche or kind of cartoonish, but to the Russian people, I mean, this is a very symbolic Thing, to have a leader represent these qualities of manly masculinity, yeah. right? I mean...
2: Yeah. yeah, that's right.
0: Yeah. What are your thoughts on Russia today? My thoughts? Well, with all the well, research you've done, I mean, how do you feel about the situation they're in, or how do you explain it?
2: Well, <clears throat> I don't really want to get involved too much in talking about the war situation. Understandably. Yeah, but, well, there have been several predictions, several very interesting predictions about Russia. For instance, the American clairvoyant, Edgar Casey, speaking, I think, back in the 1950s, said that the hope of the world was going to come out of Russia. Yes. And a number of other people have said similar things. The... German historian George Spengler said that of all the countries Russia has the strongest will. Well, I think that's true because when you think that what they've been through, they've had a series of incredibly brutal rulers from the Tsar, from the Tsars onwards, from Ivan the Terrible right up to the revolution. Then they had the terrible Stalinist period, right. when millions of people were murdered. So they've been through all of this, but they've still somehow retained their, their sense of optimism and their sense of purpose, the sense that it, it is possible to create a better world. Right. They still have this idealism. So also, they, how, sh- how shall I put it? They have, a, how shall I put this? They lack the sense of, despondency and cynicism that there seems to be pervading the west at the moment they're still hopeful and they're they have a national pride they're proud of they're proud of themselves their traditions their their orthodox religion and their nationality as russians they're proud of all this mm. and that this gives them a tremendous sense of energy and purpose so also, there are very interesting things going on in Russia in the field of arts and culture. I, mean, I mentioned in my book some of the painters, for example, who are painting these extraordinary pictures of Hyperborean scenes and so on. In the field of literature, also interesting things going on in the field of music. So there's all this going on. Yeah. And uh, so, well, one, one can only hope that when peace is restored, that we can have a kind of synergy with the Russians. And maybe Edgar Cayce's prediction will come true.
0: Well said, well said, yes. And I've heard this before. I didn't remember that it was Sacy who said it, maybe because, actually it's funny, his book's on my desk right here. Mark Booth. Oh, really? Oh, yes. He also relays that point that Russia has mm. this sort of prophetic trajectory, this momentum mm. for itself. And I agree. Mm. I hope that we can find synergy, the West and the East, and yeah. to shift Focus to a different landscape, maybe for a moment. You write about Iceland being this sort of great storehouse for the Norse for the for this culture, this Hyperborean culture, as Christianization took Europe and made a lot of this stuff sort of go underground. The runes were used in secret, preserved on gravestones, while Iceland still to this day lives and breathes this heathen, pagan. Culture that, for the most part, as you write, was sort of left to go in hiding as Christianization yeah. took over mainland Europe.
2: Yes, well, I, Iceland remained pagan until the year 1000, when what happened was that the, the king of Norway threatened to kill or maim all Icelanders living in Norway, unless Iceland converted to Christianity. So he he really twisted their arm. Mm. And uh, so the Icelanders called their assembly, their traditional assembly, the the Ting, they called this assembly, and there was an elderly uh, priest, Gorda, as they're called in Iceland. And they said, well, You've got to make the decision whether we convert or not. So he, he went off and he went on a kind of he went on a kind of vision quest. He spent a night lying under a bearskin. and in the morning he came back and he said, "Well, okay, we'll agree to convert on condition that people can continue to worship the old gods if they do so in private. So, so that, that was the agreement that was made. So from then on, Iceland was officially Christian, and uh, for a time, people could go on worshiping the old gods in private, but even that was then curtailed as time went on, and uh, Christian. So the, the, sort of the Christian screw was more and more tightened, but the old ways, the old beliefs, never died out. They went underground, and they, they continued to exist. Example in the belief in the elves, you may have heard about this. A right. Very strong belief in the elves in well, Iceland. You mentioned a
0: story where someone had a building project. They had inspectors come in and ask simply, "Have there ever been any elves here?" And when the yeah. when the all clear was sounded, they said, "No." That's all they needed to know. They left. Mm-hmm. I've heard a similar story. I forget the exact details, but it was a highway project. They had moved a boulder, or were going to move a boulder. Then they yeah. somebody said, "You <laughs> cannot move that boulder." And I, right. I think even some construction equipment might have failed on the stubborn person who didn't want to listen. And eventually, the elves won, and they had to build a road around this giant stone. Is that? Yeah.
2: Yes. Similar things have happened on a number of occasions. <laughs> Roads have been diverted. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So on. yeah. And this isn't just an
0: Icelandic phenomena. We see this in Ireland, too, with the whole concept of the ley line or one of the factors that are part of this phenomena of yeah. the ley lines where yeah. people would build their homes in such a way on the ley line that the ferry could move through the house into the front door and out the back door in one straight line as to oh, yeah. not disturb yes. their path. This was something that you see happening, I think, in Ireland, in the British Isles, mm. too. So, Yes. You know.
2: yes. But uh, pagan religion was eventually revived in Iceland
0: mm.
2: in the 1970s. Okay. There's a man called Sven Bjorn Bentyns, who was a farmer and poet, and he decided to revive the pagan religion. And he managed to get it officially accepted as one of the official religions of Iceland. That that, that was back in 1973. And he started with just a handful of followers, a dozen or so followers. And it's grown and grown since then. And now they have, I think, I think something like over 5,000 members. In a country of I don't know altogether three three or four hundred thousand, so it's a large it's a largish percentage. I mean, yeah, in, in terms of the mainstream religions, it's small, but for a minority religion, it's quite a, a large number.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's fascinating how these this way of life ha- has remained strong in these places that are kind of remote, somewhat isolated. It's funny, the word heathenry, to me, for some reason, I had the name Heath Henry mm. in my mind as I'm reading this, and I just thought, maybe that's been done before, but that would be a good pen name for someone who is writing pagan lit- literature or something, Heath Henry. But yeah, it's interesting how in the not just in Iceland, but all over the world, there's this resurgence. You see it, especially with art and music where mm-hmm. you have all mm-hmm. of these different sort of heathen metal bands. I mean metal is mm-hmm. the prize seems to be their favorite genre, but it's not just metal. There are folk bands mm-hmm. and things like this. But yeah, mm-hmm. it's interesting how you write movies, video games, comic books even have carried forth these aspects of the Hyperborean culture into the modern age. We have Thor, a blockbuster movies, and...
2: Right, there is.
0: Yeah. It's fascinating. Well, mm. w- if we can, maybe shift gears, unless you have some final thoughts on my last comment there. I do want to ask you a little bit about King Ludwig, because this is someone you've written about. King Ludwig, he was kind of embroiled in controversy even after his passing, right?
2: Yes. I mean, there's a a big cult of King Ludwig, especially in Bavaria. There There are people who regard him almost as a saint and martyr. And they're very keen to defend his reputation and present him in as positive a light as possible. And there's a whole kind of ceremony. I mean, every year they gather at the spot on Lake Starnberg where he drowned. And they lay a wreath on the shore and hold a little ceremony and so on. So there's this whole cult. I think the truth about him is perhaps not quite so romantic. Yeah, I think he, he was someone who had a rather unfortunate upbringing, had very little affection from his parents. He was given over to, to governors and governesses to look after him and brought up with a very strong sense of his, his importance as the future king, so that nourished a kind of vanity in him. And it was com- complicated by the fact that he was a homosexual, Some people would deny that, but I think it's fairly clear that he was, which at that time was a difficult thing to be. So, and also it was a very difficult time for Bavaria because Germany was going through a process of unification, really, and at one point Bavaria was absorbed into the greater Prussian Reich. And then there was a disastrous war with Austria, and so there was all this going on, and he he basically couldn't cope, really, with being king, So he retreated more and more into his own kind of fantasy world. And he created these castles really as a kind of setting for his fantasies. The most monarchs, when they build great magnificent castles, would do so in order to create an impression to the public but in his case it was just places that he wanted to be and sort of immerse himself in his fantasy world, which was a kind of a world of it was a world of the of Wagner's operas, the, the ancient the ancient Germanic gods and so on. And the world of Louis the Fourteenth, he worshipped Louis the Fourteenth. So another set of fantasies was being a kind of Bavarian Louis the Fourteenth. And so he built he built Heron Kimse Castle, which is an imitation of Versailles. And of course, all this cost a huge amount of money. So eventually, he went heavily into debt. And uh, his his behavior became so eccentric that he became an embarrassment and was removed from the throne, declared declared insane and removed from the throne. Right.
0: And his followers are... Sort of convinced that was all his enemies, his detractors, just sort of making an ins- false assessment of his insanity in order to get yeah. him removed. Right? How did this idea pervade so I mean, why, if he made all of these sort of fantastical decisions and lived this sort of delusional lifestyle, I mean, it seems pretty obvious that he was insane. Why would they? Find a uh, case otherwise.
2: Well, I think it is it is debatable whether he really was insane mm. or just highly eccentric. Right. I mean, it's it's a rather sort of um, it's a rather unclear boundary uh, between insanity and just extreme eccentricity. The public, the public loved him. I the, co- the common people loved him, and uh, there was a great deal of anger and mourning when he was removed from the throne and died.
0: His cabinet thought he was crazy, is, is more precise
2: then, right? Yes, the people was, who were was, involved
0: in his government then.
2: Yes, it was a kind of clique in the government, really, that uh-huh. wanted to have him removed. The interesting thing is, he in building these castles, he gave a tremendous impetus to the arts and crafts in Bavaria. Because he had a Schwanstein castle, which is this sort of Disneyland castle in the Alps,
0: Mm.
2: is an amazing piece of work. I mean, so he had all these people painting these wonderful murals of like scenes from Wagner's operas and uh, elaborately carved stairways and down to the last carefully carved doorknob he had a whole army of craftsmen, which gave a huge impetus to the, to, to the these crafts in Bavaria. And he also organised a series of private theatrical performances at the Court Theatre in Munich, because he hated to be, when he was watching a play, he hated to be disturbed. He wanted to be alone in the theatre, or maybe with a carefully chosen guest, so he could concentrate fully on the play. So he had had these plays put on just for himself or occasionally with a guest, which, of course, it cost an enormous amount of money, the actors and the scenery and everything else. But the interesting thing was the actors who spoke about these performances said that they were the most sublime that they'd ever experienced because they were alone there on the the stage with the king and they knew that his whole attention was... Focused on them, so so for the actors, it was a wonderful experience. Yeah, and then of course his his great service was to patronize Richard Wagner when Wagner was on his beam ends, and to, to contribute the greater part to the to build it, to the expenses involved in putting on the ring and building the Bayreuth Opera House and so on. So uh, so he left his mark in all sorts of ways.
0: Yeah, Yeah, he's a fascinating character. I can't remember who I'm thinking of mistaking him for. There was another, maybe a different king of Bavaria who had some sort of alchemical.
2: Well, well, you, you may be thinking of King Frederick William II of Prussia.
0: Yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. That's, that rang a bell when you said that name, yeah.
2: yeah I, I, I talked about him in another book I wrote okay. on the
0: Rosicrucians. Ah, interesting. Now, the Rosicrucians, they're a group we've talked about on this show. I've actually visited Johannes Kelpius's sort of hermitage monk <laughs> in Philadelphia.
2: Oh, yeah.
0: You, are you aware of
2: Mr. Kelpius? Mon- Yes, no there's the a Cloister Yes. Cloister. Is yes.
0: that the place you're talking about? Yes, that's where I well I, the Efford a Cloister is a few miles from where I visited. I visited the original spot where the Efford a Cloister was. It's now a park mm. called the Wissahickon in oh, yes. Philadelphia. But yeah, you can go there. There was a, there's a little hole in the ground. It's very plain. It's just a mm. hermitage, very simple, and there's a big stone commemorating johannes kelpius as an inscription and Mm. it's very interesting stuff the rosicrucian i've had some guests on the show say that they didn't exist other guests on the show say that well they're just sort of role-playing and Mm. it, it was they'd take on this character that they've read something about and now they were a part of this group of people well, that's a big that's a big subject. It is very big. I don't. I mean, we don't have to spend too much time on it. But maybe for the folks who know nothing about Rosicrucians, what are some of the important aspects of Rosicrucianism that you find worth sharing?
2: Well, <laughs> I would really need really need a couple of hours to to answer that. I've written about it in my book. It's actually called the Rosicrucian. Basically, it goes back to the early 17th century, in Germany, when a, some mysterious writings were published. The first one appeared in 1614, although it had been circulating in manuscript before that. It was called the Pharma Fraternitatis, with the fame or proclamation of the fraternity, or manifesto of the fraternity. And this told the story of a, a man called Christian Christian. Rosenkoitz, who was a young monk in a monastery in Germany, who went on a journey around the Middle East. And he went first to Arabia, and then along the north coast of Africa to Fez in Morocco, and then into Spain, and then back home to Germany. And he gathered knowledge and wisdom from the wise men Of these places, this is according to the account in this farmer. So then, when he got back to Germany, he then founded a brotherhood called the Brotherhood of the Rosy Cross, and its purposes were to to heal the sick, to to promote knowledge and wisdom, and, and so on. Well, the question is. Did he really exist? Did Christian Rosenkreutz really exist, or is he just a symbolic figure? And then the story goes on that after his death, or well, some years after his death, the brethren, the brethren had lost the knowledge of where he was buried. But one day they were doing some repairs in their headquarters, and they came across a vault in which his body was preserved in a coffin. And this, this vault also contained various documents, manuscripts, and so on, various sort of scientific pieces of scientific equipment and so on. So there's one school of thought that says, well, all this really happened. There really was a Christian Roscoe, there was a brotherhood. Another school of thought says, well, it was all symbolic. He was a symbolic figure. So the whole thing about the journey to the Middle East and so on was symbolic of the borrowing of wisdom from from the cultures of the Middle East. So anyway, that's how the thing got going. Then what happened was there was a whole flood of publications because at the end of of this text, the farmer, it invited people to come forward, invited the learned people of Europe to come forward and declare themselves willing to join the brotherhood so this unleashed a whole flood of publications because they left no mailing address so nobody knew where they were so there was a whole flood of publications some people writing open letters saying they wanted to join others saying others claiming that they were Rosicrucians, others attacking the, the attacking the whole thing and then well, then it all kind of fizzled out in the Thirty Years' War, which started in 1618. And after the end of the Thirty Years' War, there was a sort of revival. And uh, well, then all kinds of all, all kinds of organizations using the name Rosicrucian appeared, and that's more or less the situation today. That if you go, if you Google Rosicrucianism, you'll get thousands of entries. In, including hundreds and hundreds of groups who call themselves the, the, the this or that order of the Rosy Cross. So that, that's a kind of overall yeah. summary.
0: Yeah, I appreciate you you sharing that. It's something we've talked about on this show before, and they're an enigmatic bunch. The figures, the real people that we know, aside from Christian Rosenkreutz, who have been associated with Rosicrucianism, they are just as murky as the original Christian Rosenkreuz, right? One that comes to mind, who we've discussed on the show, is Pascal Beverly Randolph, and he was...
2: Well, he was a very interesting figure. Yeah. I mean, he had very little to do with the original rosicrucian idea right. he just picked it up really. <laughs> right he picked it up and said well I'm a rosicrucian and he began to teach his own peculiar system which involved a kind of sexual magic but he's but still he's quite an interesting figure and there are various offshoots of his movement still going today yeah and- but, um, the, the so sort of the idea of rosicrucianism you see, has, has given rise to all these different movements. It also flowed into anthroposophy, to, the, to to Rudolf Steiner's work. And he, in a way, he, in a way, thought of himself as continuing this Rosicrucian tradition. Yeah, and he, in a way, embodied the original Rosicrucian vision better than almost anyone else because the original vision was a very holistic thing. It involved not only a kind of spiritual wisdom, but also a very practical kind of approach. And Steiner very much applied that, because he took the view that spirituality shouldn't just float somewhere up up here. It should be brought down into the world through practical work. So he he had his biodynamic agriculture, the Waldorf schools, the eurythmy dance method, homeopathic medicine, and all of this was very practical. So Steiner is someone someone who took that original rosecution vision and did something very interesting with it. Mm. And also Spencer Lewis, who founded Amok, in a similar way, He, he did something very interesting. So it's you can see it as a kind of stream that's flowed in all sorts of different directions.
0: Yeah, Amwork, especially centered primarily in California there, has had quite an influence, I'd say, on the world just through their particular regional influence over the folks that have connections to Hollywood and whatnot. You see this sort of New Age spirituality float through Mm. this cultural epicenter that is the West Coast of the United States. You have this Mm. tinge of New Age ideation and even things like Egyptian culture, Freemasonic aspects of culture. I mean, one thing that I know you've written about that I've particularly studied quite a bit as it pertains to where I live in New Haven, Connecticut, there is a place in New Haven is called the Garden of the Dead. And you've written a book about gardens, right? And this Mm -hmm. sort of Mm -hmm. spiritual aspects of gardens. And what's so fascinating about this cemetery is when it was created, it was the first cemetery of its kind with sort of paved streets, separating Mm -hmm. the different plots Mm -hmm. and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And all of it is fenced in with this amazing brownstone gate that is meant to look like the temple at Dendera, Egypt. And as Mm -hmm. around that time, the people in Europe and America were experiencing a sort of Egyptian mania, as it's called, right? The people were Mm -hmm. fascinated with mummies and pharaohs and all the things they were pulling out of the tombs there this kind of influenced the new havenite culture here near yale where some of the Mm. prominent members of the of the city decided well hey we can't bury people behind the church anymore it's getting too messy there's a mass grave back there now let's Mm. go and build it this way and they created something that was meant to mimic the palatial gardens of england and france Where now you can kind of go to New Haven, this very bustling urban city, and about two, three acres of just park where, of course, people are buried. There's many headstones and whatnot, but if you're standing at the center of this cemetery you'd almost forget you were in a bustling city. It's so peaceful and quaint. And I wonder Mm -hmm. if you can speak to some of that, because I know the East feng shui and Taoism kind of influenced a lot of that park building that went on in Europe in the 1800s, 19th Mm. century.
2: Whether I can speak to the subject of Cemetery.
0: Yeah, well, yeah, not cemeteries, but just the why people were making these sort of gardens that, with these sort of spiritual idea in mind, you know, not just for the practical use of having plants, but a garden that was an actual place that you can go and have this sort of uplifting, maybe even enlightening experience.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> that again is a very big Subject right. As a, I'm just trying to think where one could say that this tradition begins. Well, I, I mean, I suppose you have to go right back to the paradise gardens of the Middle East, when the garden was thought of as a foretaste of paradise. So, the in the Persian tradition, you have the notion that paradise had four rivers of wine water milk and honey flowing out from a central point so this is this is the standard standard design up to the present day in islamic garden the, the, the four rivers and a, and in the middle usually a fountain so and then there are various other elements that are supposed to be redolent of paradise, various plants and so on that have associations with paradise or the Garden of Eden or whatever well then then if you go to the Renaissance well, go to the Middle Ages the the monastic monastic gardens of the Middle Ages are rather simple They're, they're rather simple, they don't have a great deal of complex symbology in them well, that re- that really comes in with the Renaissance, with the great gardens of Italy, where the the garden becomes a place of, you, you could say, a kind of outdoor temple, where you have a, you're confronted with certain symbols, certain statues, images, and so on that lead you through, through lead you on a kind of pilgrimage. So you come away with a message. And then this tradition was then taken up. For example, in France, the Garden of Versailles is a good example. Louis the Versailles, where the whole garden revolves around it's basically the whole thing is dedicated to Apollo. Apollo being the sun king and Louis so Apollo being the sun god. And Louis the Fourteenth is the sun king. So it sort of identified himself with Apollo. And as you go down into the Versailles Park from the palace, there's a huge fountain with a gilt statue of Apollo in his chariot coming up out of the sea, a chariot driven by horses, pulled by horses. So the whole thing re- revolves around the symbolism of the sun and the planets. The planets are personified by various statues. And Every, everything is revolves around this co- concept of a solar garden. So that's another example. And there are some very interesting examples in Germany and also some examples in England, like the Garden of Stourhead in, in Wiltshire, which is built around an artificial lake. And it has a series of features, statues and grottos and other features, representing the journey of Aeneas in Virgil's Aeneid. So again, it's a, it's a kind of initiatory journey. And I've been trying to do something similar in my own garden here in North Germany, and in, in Lower Saxony, but on a very small scale.
0: Wonderful. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, that... There's a you write about Prince Franz at Warlitz putting this oh, sort
2: Warlitz, of yes.
0: yeah putting aspects of the light the heavenly and then the dark the underworld sort of intermingled together.
2: Yes, well that, that that's a very interesting garden because it's there's actually a guidebook to that garden that was written by Prince Franz is Prince Franz's advisor a um, man he advised on the whole design of the garden, and he wrote this guidebook. So it tells you exactly what each feature in the garden means as you go through it. For example, you come to a hill, and there's, a, there's an entrance at a lower level into the hill, and then you go through four grottos, corresponding to the four elements. There's a grotto of earth and fire and water, and then a grotto of air and uh, so features like that so the whole thing is the whole garden is a symbolic itinerary yeah
0: yeah and there are aspects to some of these gardens that harken to freemasonry you you wrote about the broken yeah. pillar symbolizing this sort of man's lost knowledge
2: yeah yeah that's a very common symbol the broken column
0: I've seen that plenty of times just around my explorations of suburban America. Never yeah. quite understood what that was until I read that in your book, The Broken Pillar. Yeah, it's fascinating. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I apologize. I sort of cherry picked the more interest, what I found interesting, and I kind of gave you a bunch of questions in disparate order. But uh, yeah, I mean, there's really just so much I can talk about with you. You've covered so many subjects. It's really fascinating. What keeps you.
2: I'm happy to continue it if you want to.
0: Oh, no. Yeah, thank you. Please. I'd love to to keep asking. But uh, obviously you've written about a, a couple of different subjects we've talked about yet but there's one that we haven't covered and that's Eliphas Levi you've written about this gentleman and how oh, yes. yeah. i think in a foreword to the book that we talked about beyond the north wind mm-hmm. friend writes about how you once had a mail order book service is that right oh, yes. That's right, Tell yes. us about that and this sort of time that you spent. Because the book on Eliphas Levi, that was one of your earlier books, right?
2: That was one of my earlier. That was actually about my third book. Okay. And, uh, well, he was a very interesting character, Eliphas Levi. He, he lived from about, oh, I guess, about 1800 to 1870, that, that sort of period. And he he was a sort of pioneer, really, of magic. He was, in a way, in a way, someone who al- almost invented the idea of magic as a kind of technology, a kind of a way a way of looking at the world and operating in the world, um, rather than the sort of prim- crude cru- primitive idea of of magic that had existed previously. So the kind of kind of magic that, for example, the Golden Dawn practiced or Alistair Crowley. This is something that really was you could say goes back to Levy. and so he wrote a series of books, a history of magic, transcendental magic and so on. They're quite sort of difficult books to read. Because a very careless writer. He never reread or checked any of the things that he wrote. He just sent them off to the printer. And so they're rather incoherent and difficult to read. But there's some interesting ideas in them. For example, he really, to my knowledge, he was the first person to come up with the idea of the astral light, which is a kind of in- invisible, all-pervading fluid upon which the magician can act and uh, have an influence on the world. Mm. And this uh, this term, the astral light, was then taken up by Madame Blavatsky, and it comes into theosophy. Right. So uh, he's a significant figure, and he, uh, another in- interesting thing about him is that he was a socialist. In fact, he was a man of the left. And at one point in his life, uh, a, a, an active revolution, he was in prison for a time, and a, a great champion of women and women's rights, which which again, he, he, wrote, he in fact wrote a whole book about women, so idealizing womanhood, which again was very unusual for that time, it Was very much ahead of his time in that way. Yeah, so, it is fascinating. Yeah.
0: I'm sorry to cut you off. Go ahead.
2: What more can I say about, about Yeah.
0: Anything? It is fascinating to see his interest in that occultism and magic have a mm. resurgence around the same time women have more rights than ever in the 60s and Mm. 70s, obviously the suffragette movement and all of the things Mm. that had gone on from that time period into the 60s and 70s, this sort of cultural revolution. How much of that was carried forth through influences like Blavatsky? I guess another way of phrasing that, like do you think Blavatsky and Theosophy, Crowley, these sort of figures influenced that cultural revolution that we saw in the 60s and 70s?
2: I think they influenced part of it.
3: Mm.
2: I think they influenced the part that was interested in <clears throat> things like transcendental meditation, yoga, right. uh, going off on the hippie trail to Nepal or B- Bhutan or wherever. Right. So that was sort of one strain in the, in the cultural revolution. But the more sort of secular, radical, revolutionary strain—I don't think they—they they were really into these sort of ideas, these sort of mystical, occult, esoteric ideas. I would think, that maybe, maybe even rather hostile to them. I mean, the sort of people who would have followed Herbert Marcuse, for example, hmm. they wouldn't have been into these things at all. I don't think so.
0: Yeah. So there's so much you've covered. Is there anything that you're planning on writing about next? Anything you're actively working on researching yeah, at the moment?
2: Yeah, yes, I have a book on occult Germany, um, ah. in the works. That's fascinating. Yeah. Now, it sort of follows on quite naturally from my book on occult Russia. Right. Um, Right, yeah, Germany is obviously a country I know very well because I've, I've lived here for nearly thirty years. Okay, I I worked at a
0: German bakery for quite a while. My my former boss is a man from Venezuela who went to Germany and learned all sorts of amazing baking mm. arts. And my favorite bread is the Vulcanbrot. So you might have oh, a, yes. you might yeah. be familiar with that, but I. <laughs> I'm a little bit of a, a, a I have a fascination with Germany and especially New Haven seems to have a sort of German subculture, whether that's Mm. because of Yale or not, I don't know. But the bakery that I worked at is in New Haven and is quite popular Mm. amongst Mm. the citizens for their German bread. So yeah, it's Mm. interesting that this kind of Mm. German subculture is here as well.
2: So your name is of German origin, is it?
0: Yeah, Steves is a America an anglicized version of a German last name, Steef, and everybody who has this last name Steves can trace their genealogy back to Johann Heinrich Steef, who emigrated to Philadelphia with his wife from Germany.
2: Was it spelled S T I E? F or S T E I F?
0: I believe the I came first.
2: Oh, yeah, in that case it would be stief. Yeah. Because if, if the E comes first, it would be stiff. Ah,
0: okay. Yeah.
2: Well, stiff stif is a word that means stiff. So, so oh. if the name meant stiff, it would be steif. Ah. Oh. But if, if it was stief, it would have a different meaning. Huh.
0: Interesting. Well, the article I have could be wrong, or I could be just misremembering the order of the mm. letters. But yeah, that it—that's interesting. I uh, yeah have sort of a particular interest in just tracing that back, and uh, yeah, it turns out that Johann Heinrich Stief went to Philadelphia. And then Mm. through something that Benjamin Franklin organized, him and his family and some other folks from Germany went up and settled Mm. the New Brunswick area of Canada. And since then, that name, that family Mm. name has kind of spread far and wide. But Mm. yeah, yeah, I'm interested in Germany as well because of Again, my research into Yale University and on a controversial note, their secret society, Skull and Bones, which has some outwardly German sort of expressions or aspects to it.
2: Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah,
0: Mm. it's interesting because as far as occultism goes in Germany, you can read a lot about the Nazis' interest in the occult. And then prior to them, aside from the Teutonic, Knights, the Teutonic system of magic. I mm. haven't found much about the occult. So when I read about King Ludwig and and Wagner and all of this going on in Germany, it, it kind of fast. It piqued my interest, but uh, I'm very excited about your next book because this might answer some of my questions about things like the thoughts on bones and the skeleton and where that fits mm. into the occult world of Germany? Because in England, I've read about the bonesmen who were sort Mm. of the grave keepers. They would bury people and exhume Mm. people depending on situations. And Mm. I wondered if maybe that's the sort of heritage where Skull and Bones, this group of college students, maybe they are sort of pointing at that in England. Maybe there's something similar in German culture that They're pointing at, but uh, yeah, it's all speculative. I'm just uh, Mm. over Mm. here with my limited knowledge, doing the best I can to find some (laughs) answers to these constantly unfolding mysteries.
2: Yeah. Well, maybe we can, Talk again when the Germany book comes out.
0: I would like that very much. Yeah, I've enjoyed speaking with you. I know we're sort of coming up on the top of the second hour here, so I don't want to hold you too much longer. It's later (laughs) where you are than it is for me.
2: So uh, it's very hot here. It's it's 35 degrees. Oh. So... (laughs) So I'm starting to dissolve in sweat.
0: (laughs) Well, I'll let you go. I don't want to keep you, I don't want you to melt on film here. I'm recovering (laughs) from that. It's been a sweltering heat all week. I'm in a basement right now, so I'm kind Mm. of saved from that. But yeah, I understand. It's hot here too. Well,
2: Well, I think you'll have to do quite a bit of editing on this interview because uh, there were moments when i was hesitating a
0: lot and oh that's fine yeah no i'm quite i'm quite detailed with that i try to spend a lot of time and massage the episode yeah. it'll sound yeah. very good i promise and if you'd like i can send you the episode if you'd like to listen back but, oh, yeah i
2: would like to yes.
0: yeah please and uh, for folks listening now, is there one place where they can find your books? do you mind you, do you have a, a spot or do you just well, tell folks to pick them up at stores amazon
2: well uh, amazon's probably the best place I have a website right which they can go to I'll give you the address it's www osgard. that's spelled o z g a r d www.osgard.net. Net. All right. And I'll make that, sure. That'll give them a lot of information about my books and other activities wonderful
0: yeah i hope they do i will list that in the description of this episode so folks listening, go and click that link www.osgard.net and uh, yeah mr mcintosh it's been fantastic speaking with you and i look forward to having you back on the show again yes this is very interesting stuff folks tuning in thank you so much for being here and uh, immerse yourself in the moment wherever you are in the now All right, ladies and gentlemen, that is our episode with Dr. Christopher McIntosh, and I've been waiting for this episode for a while. His book, Beyond the North Wind, is really, really, really interesting. Uh, With the audioread.com app, I was able to turn the PDF that I purchased into an audiobook. I listened to it before this interview. I hoped it helped. Uh, I don't want to continue to cram research for guests. I've done that here and there. And uh, yeah, this may be a way to help. It took me a couple days, but I got through his book uh, right in time to interview him. And I felt like that helped me ask better questions about that particular book. Although I will admit, uh, his other books, I was a little foggy. And uh, he is a difficult guest interview in some ways. Uh, You know, as intelligent and uh, established in many ways as he is. Um, I guess I just needed to find better prompts to get his wheels turning, so to speak. So uh, I will be having him back on to talk further about his next or latest book, depending on when this comes out. uh, The Occult Russia. And Russia is a place that many people are thinking about. So let's learn as many things as we can about that place while it is uh, on the in the zeitgeist. You know, Russia seems to come back up every so many years as a boogeyman, as a you know enemy, as you know a victim needing support i've always been very interested in russia russia is a fascinating place so i enjoyed talking to dr mcintosh about that very much and i think that came off uh in this interview but i will continue to be putting out fascinating interviews so stay tuned we got some great episodes on the way and some bonus episodes that have been released on the patreon for patreon people only so if you want to go and check out my interview with occultus lux uh, you can find that on the patreon i'll be uploading that shortly and of course many many bonus episodes whether it's illuminati confirmed or the various shows that i've put together over the years and of course early releases i've written some articles that you can find on the substack and all of the video versions of the show are available on rockfin so shout out to all of our supporters I want to give a big special shout out to someone who just today donated a one-time donation his name on instagram is 3c is it just at yeah it's at just underscore c poppy p-a-p-i shout out to you bro thank you for the support and shout out to all of you who have donated um from time to time. If you have in the past, consider donating again. Every little bit helps and I will be giving everyone a shout out from here on out. So if you missed out on a shout out, donate again and I got you. I will not forget. I will not let it go by the wayside. Anyways, big shout out to the Hit Kit. I took my Hit Kit out on the canoe this past 4th of July. That was a blast got to smoke a little bit on the water the wind wasn't too crazy and it was nice just floating there not thinking about anything and just enjoying the scenery enjoying the surroundings Uh, but you can enjoy your summer with a hit kit use the promo code crazy and save 15 percent off at checkout get yourself a hit kit the number one way to get lit keeping your lighter right there safe and sound you're not going to lose it and two compartments for whatever you're smoking on spliff blunt joint whatever it is you can put it right there in your hit kit a bunch of different designs and you can custom order your very own logo your own design whatever you thought of whatever you'd like to have on your hit kit get it i got an mftic hit kit i've got a new haven hit kit with the new haven seal on it so i love the hit kit it's great addition to my uh, everyday carry, so to speak. So anyways, that's all. Excuse me. Sorry to clear my throat. There's my podcast etiquette. There it is. Got it back. So that's about it for today's episode. I've got some interesting projects on the way, obviously continuing the Skull and Bones series and Sam Tripoli, Eddie Bravo, and XG will be coming to Connecticut on August 12th. So if you're a listener of this podcast and you're in the area, uh, go and see that show because I'll be there. If you don't already listen to Tinfoil Hat, which I'm surprised that you don't, uh, if you know who I am, you should know who Sam Tripoli and Tinfoil Hat uh, are or is who they are, Johnny and XG and of course, Eddie Bravo. Um, Funny story. The first time i ever smoked weed it was partly because i saw an eddie bravo youtube video i was a big martial artist back in the day i loved jujitsu mma i still do but i don't train like i did back then but i remember one of the reasons why i said all right i'll try smoking weed is because i saw eddie bravo ripping a bong and doing the twister and all these other sick jujitsu moves and i know He probably doesn't like me saying that, but I appreciate him for that. So if you want to go to the show, it's going to be in Broadbrook, Connecticut, which is in the northern part of Connecticut. Buy a ticket. Hit me up on Instagram. Let me know you're going to be there. I'll bring you a sticker. You get a sticker from me and uh, I'll be happy to meet you. I'm looking forward to it. So I'll see you all there. And until next time, immerse yourself in the moment, wherever you are in the now.
3: Strip, terrestrial, trying to stay human in a cesspool of professionals. But I confess too much off with of the tongue. All my aunties and my uncles shield the ears of the young. Hobby saying shit and they don't know where it's coming from. And like a hundred years, we went Zar Bomber from guns. Check the facts, check the Fed, check the stars. Stanley mine was merged for a water fuel cell car. They each they own, you can stick with your own ways. But eat the rich you drink the motherfucking Kool Aid. And I can see the red on your lip stain. White skin, blue collops, you American made. Fuck it. You can keep your blood soaked tear And run the soul off the moon landed narrative. Yeah. My girl thinks that I'm embarrassing. My folks think I'm nuts, but never question the parenting. Stuck in bed, so my boss thinks I'm lazy. Connecting dots, but it's all kinda hazy. Good morning in the net, feeling like I'm Dick Tracy. My path thinks I'm un-American and shady. Yeah. I'm feeling unhinged lately. Encounters of the fifth kind on the daily. You could tell me that the president's a navy and it wouldn't phase me. My family thinks I'm crazy. I think that I'm off finish. One too many Netflix docs on the weekends But check the budget for a military defense Tell me we ain't scared of something not within reason Steel beams, another 1492 And 9-11 was the red, white, and blue And you be lit off the floor, I ain't got a clue All your dreams just shit on the Rockefeller shoes Don't believe a damn thing a politician ever said Ain't one brick left to gold up in the Fed They still got bricks of cocaine to make crap Oxy's killing the working class, FDA's wacky Talking like this, got kin talking behind backs. Too much to unpack, so they talk smack. And I'm just trying to converse with my clan, but it ain't fan. So I'm here setting up can. Stuck in bed, so my boss thinks I'm lazy. Connecting dots, but it's all kinda hazy. Come on in the internet, feeling like I'm Dick Tracy. My pack thinks I'm un-American and shady. Yeah, I'm feeling unhinged lately. Encounters of the fifth kind on the daily. You could tell me that the president's an alien, it wouldn't phase me. My family thinks I'm crazy Baby, baby, baby My family thinks I'm crazy Maybe, maybe, maybe Just maybe Stuck in bed baby, so my boss baby, thinks I'm lazy And Connecting dots where it's all coming crazy I'm only baby, getting that feeling baby, like I'm Dick Tracy My pad thinks I'm the marriage baby, and it's shady baby, I'm baby, feeling unhinged lately I'm standing on the stage. So you can tell me that the president's make, an atheist but it faze me. Make, My make, family make, thinks I'm crazy. Yeah, I think one thing I've learned is you can't rule anything out. So, you yeah. know.